like doing that. Today's scripture reading is from John 21, 15 through 19. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. This is the word of the Lord. been doing uh, some form of speaking about Jesus in um, public settings for around 20 years, and this is the longest series I've ever done. So if you think it's worked out well, you can let me know, and if you don't, well, don't worry. I have no plans to recreate it in the future. Um, And what has happened for me personally is these stories that I'm very familiar with. I've been a Christian for a long time. I've been to seminary. got the lowest possible score on the Bible exam you can take and not have to take Bible content when I went into seminary. I, I was proud of that. I, I put that letter on my desk, like I, it was up on my desk. I didn't study for it, so it's okay. I know the Bible, you know. Anyway, so I know these stories, and yet um, by focusing on the questions that first people asked Jesus, and he always answered their questions, but then at Easter, focusing on the questions Jesus asked his followers has been very uh, eye-opening to me in terms of faith, in terms of seeing the human faith, face of Jesus, in terms of learning to hear his voice by faith. I'm struck again, and this is the last time, the last Sunday anyway, that you'll hear me say this, I think, that these stories are so mellow. So I, do you remember that right before Jesus' farce of a trial, Peter standing outside and, or during the trial and, and he denies him three times. This happens in John chapter 18. Peter's relatively famous for this. Um, I say in a relative sense because, you know, there are statues of him all over Rome now. Which, can you imagine trying to explain that to him? I was researching the basilica this morning and like his feet, you know, are worn out because people kiss them. Can you imagine trying to explain that to Peter? Like what we know of his personality? I don't think we could have done it. Be like any of those movies where someone comes in from the future and he would have been just as incredulous, I think. And for me, continuing to notice how he moves towards his followers is, has been enlivening to my faith, and I hope it has been for you also. This story is like so many in Scripture, there are, 
there are parts of it that are interesting. There are details that are interesting that sometimes can distract us from the point. Do you know what the point of this story is? It's Jesus going to his friend and restoring him exactly the number of times that he denied him. You know, especially with Peter, because Peter's kind of rash and, and pretty passionate and kind of other than the time James and John wanted to call down fire from heaven, Peter's sort of like the fun disciple, at least for us. And so the stories sometimes can distract us from the point. You know, in John 6, he records Jesus walking on water and Peter goes out to meet him. And we're like, whoa, it's so amazing that Peter walked on water. But that's not the point of the story. The most beautiful, the pinnacle part of that story is Jesus reaching down and pulling him back. Not that it's not cool what happened with Peter and all the little anecdotes in between, but the story is about the pursuing love of Jesus, moment by moment, person by person, denial by denial, restoring them to himself. And this is what Christians get to learn to do in relationships with one another. We go back and, and we do it wisely, but because of the love of God and because of the gospel, what we long for is restoration. Parents, this is why disciplining your children is so hard. Because what you're longing to do is not punish them for the thing so that they don't do it again. Yes, that's part of what you want, especially in a moment of fatigue. What you really want is restoration of relationship, which is why we're constantly wondering, how do we do discipline? That's why. Spouses, that's why it's so tricky because there was this miscommunication or not a miscommunication. There was actually a miss. And finding one another and learning how with all the emotions of the moment and all the stories that we come into the relationship with, we long for it to be restored. Same thing with our friendships and with our coworkers. Jesus is a restorer, and he doesn't restore Peter so that we can learn how to discipline our children. He restored Peter because Peter denied him, and Jesus is a loving friend and savior. But we learn from him in modeling his pursuit of all these people after the res resurrection that he is a loving friend and savior and restores to himself. Jesus moves towards Peter and restores him, and I... I find it beautiful. I find it beautiful how he interacted with Thomas. You remember Thomas's three doubts and one ultimatum? And what does Jesus do? He steps towards him, offers three things, and gives a strong encouragement to Thomas. And Thomas didn't need to touch him, by the way. He thought he would, and then he didn't. He heard his voice, and he saw his face, and he was moved because Jesus restored him. A couple of other times in the resurrection, Narratives. Jesus will ask his disciples and followers, why are they troubled? And contextually, I'm saying, I'm saying troubled is when we believe something, but we're still struggling with it. And Jesus moves towards those followers, and he's with them in their questions and troubles and doubts. If doubt is something you're not sure you believe, and a trouble is something you believe and you're troubled by, do you pray about your doubts and your troubles? If not... What are you doing in terms of faith and in terms of your heart coming alive to the promises of God? Do you talk about them in community? I was troubled this morning 
because I preached in the 9 o'clock service and was standing in the welcome room in between and a recent college graduate started asking me compelling questions about this text that I've never thought about. With your troubles and your doubts, do you talk to trusted friends about these things? I hope so. Because humanly, that's how we grow in faith. To engage our doubts and our troubles Jesus doesn't only restore Thomas from his doubts and the other disciples from his trouble. He restores from comparisons. Right after this text, uh, Peter, Jesus starts talking to Peter and John and the rest of the disciples sort of pick up on this. And Jesus is helping them understand that each other have different gifts. And that's okay. And I love that story as, as uh, challenging as it is that, that John has to repeat it twice because the disciples apparently really got it in their heads that perhaps John was going to live forever. The point was, Jesus restores us from this tendency that isn't in and of itself sinful, but can certainly lead to sin, where we envy one another's gifts. God has given you gifts and circumstances and affections, and he's given you limits. And he did that for his glory and in his wisdom and his timing. I know exactly one person in my whole experience playing basketball who has an effective hook shot very difficult to block. And it's okay that I don't have a hook, right? There are things I can do that this person can't do. That's a silly example, right? I'll tell you whose gifts I look up to in the middle of the week, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. It's a lot of the people here that do deaconing or that deacon and do our hospitality team. I finally, finally got my fried rice recipe correct and then I oversalted it. I know, rookie, and you're like, and those of you that are good cooks, you're like, rookie mistake. It totally was, even though it's the ninth time I've made fried rice. And it still tasted pretty good, but I oversalted it. And that's okay. And it's okay for me to learn, but, but we have this tendency to look up to one another's gifts and affections even. Some people have a broken heart for certain parts of the world, and they're good at ministering to those marginalized people, and we're like, that bothers me, but it doesn't bother me as much as them. And we wonder, like, Did God actually give me the affections, the broken heart that he gave me for the certain parts of the world that are not yet even close to just? Yes. God restores our tendency to compare. And with Peter, he's very much restoring his shame. You know why he restored him three times? It's because Peter denied him three times. And I think Peter, like some of us, this is totally true for me, we're a little bit prone to shame. There are stories from my life when I'm nine years old and I remember the exact story. And the details stick in my head. And I can still feel them. And by faith, what's happening is I interact with this story and learn about the human face of Jesus and the voice of Jesus and his, how he interacted with his friends and followers is that he's a healer and restorer. Peter denies him three times. Jesus moves towards him three times. In Acts chapter 1, the disciples have expectations that Jesus is going to restore the nation state of Israel. And and there are good expectations. Christians, you are to expect to receive the assurance of love of the Holy Spirit. You are to expect from God 
that you know that you're his and he is yours. That's a good expectation. But we have lots of not good expectations too, right? Jesus, I'll go ahead and follow you as long as I will uh, be healed of this. I'll go ahead and find, and we don't realize it. We don't like make a deal and write it in our journal. We realize it over time after we've suffered a little bit that we were expecting the Christian life to block us from that or to heal us from it or to rescue us from it. With all of these things, we hold them up to Jesus asking for his restoration. I think in some respects, Mary Magdalene is one of the more emotionally and spiritually mature followers in this moment. We don't know enough about her story. We certainly don't know enough about the other disciples, some of whom are not named. But if you look at the way Jesus restores Thomas three times plus an encouragement, the way he restores Peter three times plus a little bit of interaction with John, the way he restores the disciples that were troubled, with, with Mary, he's restoring her from something that I, I, I need for us to attempt to see because it's, it's, it's often a lock on our humanity and on our faith, and it's this. He restores her from her grief. Oftentimes, grief is what's underneath the symptoms of our lives, the things we're much more aware of. That person in your life that you struggle with how controlling they are, probably what's underneath it is not a desire to annoy you, it's grief. That person in your life that you can think of that's more angry than you maybe think they should be or or it's challenging for you to be with them because of their anger, what's actually behind that probably is grief. Oftentimes for me, as one who struggles with shame, what's often behind the shame is grief that I have not held out with an open hand or even acknowledged or recognized. So I look at Mary, who was obvious, Mary Magdalene, in her affection for Jesus, and his restoration of her is simpler than Thomas or Peter or the other disciples. It's because she was in touch, in some respects, with her affections. And Jesus' restoration of her is, don't cling to me, which is the same as him sending Peter out. But he only needed to say one statement. He says that to her because she had a role in the kingdom, and it wasn't simply to literally hold Jesus. And the reason I say that to you is, as we think about our doubts the things we're not sure we believe, as we think about our troubles, the things that we believe but struggle with, as we think about our tendencies to comparison, our struggles with shame, and our expectations, oftentimes what's underneath those things is a grief. Because if you are older than five, there, and maybe even if you're younger than five, but for sure if you're older than five, there have been things that have happened in your life that we need to grieve, and that's part of our faith. And as I look at Jesus interacting with Mary and look at Jesus interacting with Peter, I think we can learn something about our own humanity. Jesus moves towards Peter and he restores him. And I want to say one more thing about that. I hope that you know to pray this way. I begin a lot of prayers. Jesus, we come to you now to be restored in you, or I come to you now to be restored in you. That is his promise. That is what faith does. It heals our inner being, gives us a new heart, begins the process of healing us holistically by reconciling us to God, and it is absolutely a good expectation. I hope that you begin some amount of prayers. Jesus, I come to you now to be restored in you. 
Jesus moves towards Peter and restores him with deliberate love. I don't know about you, I feel like most of the times that I've heard people preach on this, they talk about the alternating uh, Greek words for love. Is that just me, or did all of you hear that sermon in the past? So Jesus and and Peter will go back and forth between using agape and phileo, and there's a reason, and, and it is that our love is imperfect. Now, the words are not so different as sometimes people imply, as though they're all together different things. I would say they overlap quite a bit, though one is certainly stronger and purer. And the point of that is, is our love for Jesus, our actions, and our feelings. We don't need to reduce love to all feeling or all action. That's silly, and you know it. And I know you know it. I can tell. It's an intelligent audience. Our love for Jesus is imperfect, and he still moves towards us and restores us to himself. I'll tell you the other reason I don't think we should overfocus on the fact that he alternates words for love. He also alternates uh, words for livestock. Because the point is to restore Peter and then as he's restored to send him out on mission to remind him of his passion and his gifts, his role in the kingdom as a proclaimer of the forgiveness of sins because of Jesus. And as we picture Jesus and Peter talking, perhaps you're able also to picture Thomas. Perhaps you're able to picture the disciples back here listening to him talk to Peter and John and kind of compare, is John really going to get to live forever? Perhaps you can sense Peter's shame. I don't know how many of you are prone to shame. Not everyone's prone to shame. I learn this most specifically when I am reading about people that are prone to fear because that is not my struggle. And my 10-year-old, oh my gosh, not her struggle either. We went to the carnival yesterday and we rode every ride. Oh my goodness. Some of us are more prone to shame like Peter and you can sense his head down. You can sense the internal grief. Some of us more prone to other troubles. And Jesus is already with you, follower of Jesus, because of the Holy Spirit. He's also moving towards you. I believe that's why we have the text. I believe that's why corporate worship matters. That's why we choose religious practices, not to get God, not to learn, though learning's important, but to help our mind and our heart rest in the restoration of Jesus. That's why we pray and sing and talk with our friends about these things. And each question that Jesus asks restores and reinvigorates Peter as a worshiper and lover of God and as an agent of God's kingdom. And I think that by far the most profound part of the story is the fact that he does it three times to match Peter's three denials. Jesus moves towards Peter and restores him with deliberate love and he calls him into kingdom mission. This is Peter's final with Jesus commissioning. It's a brief conversation, and again, I I think it's amazing to consider that there can't be more than a handful of statues of Domitian, both because he was, that's a Caesar at the time, probably the Caesar when John was writing this. Might have been Nero. Not positive. Partly because they were uh, very violent, horrible humans and leaders, as far as we can tell. But the point is, these house churches, these small clusters of Jewish men and women that were now beginning to follow Jesus as Jewish men and women turned the world upside down. There are 91 popes buried in the basilica. 
You guys don't think that's as interesting as I do. Jesus restores Peter, and in his loving restoration of him, Peter is reinvigorated to his calling as one who is going to teach people about the with God life, the way of following Christ. And as we receive his restoring love through worship, through our own times of prayer, through conversation with other Christians, through learning to uncover and then be honest about our expectations, doubts, and griefs, he not only restores our hearts to himself, he propels us into mission also. Feed my sheep and feed my lambs is for us also. Do you know where you're called to be an agent of God's grace and peace and reconciliation and healing? We've talked about this a lot because this is the point, this is the conclusion of the point of each of the resurrection narratives is to push all the followers, not push, propel all the followers of Jesus into their mission. Do you know where you're called as a follower of Christ? I hope that you do. And those of you that do, I hope that you praise God for that. Those of us that do not, and this is, I, I've spoken about this a lot, so I'll be brief, but your calling is a mixture of your gifts and circumstances and affections. It's what you're good at. It's what breaks your heart about where there's injustice and a lack of peace and a lack of love in this world. And it's also your circumstances. Many of us have circumstances that tie us closer to home than others. And that God didn't do that on accident. Your circumstances as a 20-year-old are very different than a 30-year-old and a 40-year-old and 50-year-old and 60-year-old. And yet, if you're here, if you're still in this earth and you're a follower of Christ, you do have a role. I spoke to a 92-year-old man after church and I said, I think this is your role. And it involves activity. And he said, happy to do it. Because he's a follower of Jesus and he understands this. And he's not going to go pick up the food, you know, at KFC and take it down to the food pantry anymore. He used to. Now he has a role that's more of a mentor. Do you know what your role is in feeding sheep? Maybe it's through here. You might not think it matters when you're a Sunday school teacher. I can name four of my Sunday school teachers by name. I wish I could name all, you know, 25 of them, but I can name four. And I can even tell you something about how they were a good friend to me through that. When we do the work in and around Simsbury, reaching out to the marginalized, even in Simsbury, through the food pantry, through the social worker that we've adopted, perhaps your places have nothing to do with this local gathering. That's okay but I hope that you know where you're called as an agent of God's grace and redemption and justice and peace. And you can't do all of it. You really can't. You have limits also. And I know I mention that all the time, but do you know that pastors get up here and they motivate people and those people get worn out? I don't want you to be worn out. That's not the gospel. Be worn out for Jesus. It's serve as he's called you to and enjoy it. One of my favorite stories is one of our elders who's, who's leading the way with faithful presence told me yesterday, it never tires me. And I was like, that's great. All of it tires me. I'm so glad. And I don't think we get that satisfaction from our calling at all times, but I was so grateful that she knows where she's called to feed the Lord's sheep. I hope that you feel confidence in your calling as well. 
And the way that we receive that is by faith and the power of the Holy Spirit, hearing the voice of Jesus, and by faith, seeing his face as he restores us to himself through his work on the cross and then calls us into kingdom mission for which all of you are individually gifted and called into. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we come to you now to be restored in you. We come to you now to be restored by you. We come to you now trusting by faith that you are the same through prayer that you were to Peter and Mary Magdalene and Thomas and John. You are the restorer of life. Lord, for those of us that know our calling before you, would you affirm that in us and help us to praise you for it? And for those that are considering, where do I participate? Draw near to them, Holy Spirit, through conversation with friends and prayer and a study of your word so they might know that you call them not only to yourself and away from sin and death, but also into mission. Good Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, we come to you now to be restored in you. Would you remind us in deep and warm and powerful ways that indeed we have your love and it will never, ever let us go. Amen.